Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we believe that you inspired your servant David to record the words of Psalm 27. We believe these words not only had power in the day that David wrote them, but these words have power this day because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so we pray, Father, send your Holy Spirit now to open this word for us, perhaps as never before, that we would be changed more and more to be like Christ for the sake of the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. The most significant decision a Christian makes every week, the most significant decision a Christian makes every week is will I go to church? No other decision will have so much of an impact on what we believe, on how we live, and on whether we're able to stand in the face of all that comes against us. It's interesting, over the last seven months, this most vital decision has become harder and harder to make, hasn't it? This decision to come and gather together as the people of God in church. And in one sense, technology has been such a huge blessing. Right? We've had the ability, we've learned so much over the last few months in how to connect digitally, to do this online, to be together in a different kind of way. I've got a meme printed out on the fridge at home that sort of, I think, encapsulates all of this digital streaming during COVID-19, which says, and like that, my pastor became a televangelist. <laughs> but the challenge is it's not just the blessings that technology has brought, it's also the challenges, the curses of technology. Because all of a sudden, as the church has moved more digital and more streaming like the rest of our world, it's added fuel to the old question, do I really need to come to church to encounter God? It makes me think of the great Canadian philosopher and theologian, Justin Bieber, who says... You don't need to go to church to be a Christian. If you go to Taco Bell, it doesn't make you a taco. He's ours, he's Canadian. But not only is that sentiment wrong-headed and not historically grounded, not biblically grounded, but that kind of sentiment is dangerous. Because while we live now in a world where some, rightly so, need to watch from a distance for their safety, some because of their own health and whether they become sick, need to stay away for a season. The difficulty is that by adding fuel to this sentiment about whether we need to gather together in church for worship, we are going to find more and more people choosing not to come to worship for a whole avalanche of other reasons. More about preference and more about convenience. We must understand, as we look at Psalm 27, and by the way, 
I'm using Psalm 27 in our bulletin. This is the new Coverdale version of the Psalter, which is in our 2019 prayer book. And the versification is slightly different than your Bible. And that's just because the Psalms, when they're put into a prayer book, are meant to be read responsively. So follow the verses according to the bulletin this morning. But as we look at Psalm 27, here's what we see. That biblical Christianity, and I would argue 2,000 years of church history, cannot comprehend there being any trial that could come before the people of God that would long-term keep them from gathering together for worship. David knows this. In this psalm, David shows us what he knows about how to live in difficult times. And what he says is this. David knows this, that in church, in the house of God, in gathered worship, we behold our future. There is no future that we can truly behold and grab hold of and believe in that we will find outside of the gathered people of God together in church. But not only does David know that in church we behold our future, but it's that we behold our future as we behold the fullness of God as our Father. See, first David shows us that in church we behold our future. Look at verses two and three. When the wicked, David says, even my enemies and my foes came upon me to eat up my flesh, they stumbled and fell. Though a host were encamped against me, yet my heart would not be afraid. And though war rose up against me, yet would I put my trust in him. See, David understands what it is to face real trial. David understands what it is to have the whole world falling down on his head, to be encamped and surrounded by opposition. I mean, just look at a picture of David's life at the point that we think he wrote this psalm, that he has already dealt with false accusations, murder attempts on his life, exile, poverty, and betrayal by both his wife and his son. And after all that, what does David ask for? I mean, I could think of a list of things I'd ask for. What does David say? Verse four, one thing I have desired of the Lord. One thing I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the fair beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Do you hear this? David doesn't ask for a bigger army. He doesn't ask for easier circumstances. He, he asks that he would be in church, worshiping God. And the reason why is because David knows that beholding God, having a vision of God in our lives, beholding God will recalibrate the way we see the world. The question we're constantly asked in scripture is, will we allow our circumstances to define who we are and who our God is? Or will we allow our God to define who we are and what these circumstances mean? Listen to what he says in verse 16. I would utterly have fainted 
had I not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I would utterly have faded, no doubt, facing all this. I would have been undone, David says, if I had not believed. Notice that he doesn't say, I would have fainted if I had not arrived at a solution. If I had not taken the time to work this out and fix my situation. No. David says, I would have fainted if I had not believed. Despite the circumstances, believing that there is a God and he alone gives me a future. I don't know about you, but I'm a fixer. It's one of the blessings and curses in my life. I see a problem, whether it's in work, at home, and I got to fix it. And for me, the reason I have this frantic desire to fix it is actually rooted often in the fact that until I fix it, I cannot rest. I feel like it's all on me. I've got to make this right. And I know I'm not speaking alone this morning about this. Here's the difficulty we all face. Is one way or another, we eventually hit a problem that we can't fix. Again and again, we're going to run into that in our lives. Here's a problem we can't fix. I remember when we were moving down here almost, almost five years ago, four and a half years ago, we sold our house in Ottawa. And we were so excited and it was all done and the moving company had been hired and our house was on the market and we had a real estate agent that did the, you know, that thing where they say, oh, it's going to sell in like a day. And then a month went by and there was problem after problem and the foundation had an issue, which we didn't know about. And then you call in the experts and then offer after offer falls through. And what happens with that? The price keeps dropping. And we're standing there as a couple, relocating our entire family to another country and watching all our equity just vanish before our eyes. And I tried to fix it, but I couldn't. At the end of the day, there was a common phrase that Monica and I fell back on again and again. It was the only thing that got us through. Every time we'd get a bad news phone call from the realtor, we'd simply say, God has not changed. God has not changed. Everything else has, but God has not changed. This is where David sees his future. His future is in God. As Corey Tenboom says, Look to the world and be distressed. Look within and be depressed. Look to God and be at rest. This is what David knows. But hold on, you might say. What does beholding God and having that give us a future have to do with being in church? Right? We're back to the age-old question. I mean, we can experience God in creation. We just got back as a family from spending a week just outside of Destin, uh, sitting on the beach. I grew up on an island, so for me, I, I yearly have to have an opportunity to get my sand and my like sand between my toes, look at those waves. And there's so much about God that I do experience in that moment, in creation. And for some of you, it's a rainforest. And for some of you, it's climbing a mountain. But the point is, you may say, well, doesn't David elsewhere in Psalm 19 say, the heavens declare the glory of God? 
The sky above declares his handiwork. Why do we have to be in church to behold God? And David's answer would be, true, you can experience God in many ways in creation. But in church, we have a future because in church, we behold the fullness of God. We experience in church the fullness of God, that which we cannot experience just in creation alone. Look what he says in verse five. To behold the fair beauty of the Lord, to seek him in his temple. That language of fair beauty, it is best translated as the kindness or the majesty or the glory or that which we would delight in about God, the full picture of God. That's what David wants, the fair beauty, the fullness of the Lord. And just to be clear, when David says fair beauty, he's not talking just aesthetics. He's not talking about something abstract. He's talking about something tangible. Elsewhere in Psalm 90, verse 17, David will say, let the beauty of the Lord be upon us and establish the work of our hands. The beauty of the Lord, the fullness of the Lord, the majesty of the Lord will be something so tangible it can fall upon his people. It can establish our hands. The beauty of the Lord moves and works in our lives and in our midst. Yes, we can see God in creation, but God has built us churches where we can behold him in the fullest, the fullest way possible this side of eternity. For many years, when I would start reading the Bible every year, my annual Bible plan, maybe you've experienced this, about early February, I'd get stuck. Because in about early February, I'd run into Exodus 25. And from Exodus 25 through to Numbers 15, 57 chapters, all it is is a description of how to build the tent of meeting, how to build the place where the people of God will worship, what the priests are to wear, how we're to furnish it, how it's to look, the kind of festivals and celebrations we're to have in there. God spends so much of his Torah telling us how to create a place and a space for worship. And finally, after many years of struggling through those passages, I finally wrote in the margin note of my Bible, I said, this is God detailing for us how much he cares that we encounter him in worship. The detail of this creative, majestic God. You know, this morning, Father David and Fran Roseberry are with us, and I'm going to say hello to them in a moment during the announcements. But I think everyone can agree that so much of the gift of this place, first, is the gift of people that have been gathered here under the gospel. But right up close beside that is the gift of the space that we have to worship in. The spaces that we have to worship in. The the gift of this sanctuary 
of this campus, a place that is set aside and holy, the intricate decisions, piece by piece, section by section, saying, how do we create a space that can, for a people of God, show them as much as is possible the fullness of the God we worship? It's the reason why I am committed to a liturgical expression of worship. A number of years ago, I had that watershed moment when I was serving in my church in Ottawa. And like many Anglican Episcopalians, I had went back and forth over the years about kind of the style of worship and saying, you know, is, is this traditional, liturgical, sacramental approach, is it, is it reaching the world? W- would we be better just to sort of follow the more seeker-sensitive model? And again, full disclosure, I got saved in a seeker-sensitive Bible church. So I give thanks to God for the call on certain churches to serve in that way. But for me, as I I, I went along, I kept saying, Lord, is is that what we're just to do? Are we to sort of get past all this liturgy and tradition? And I went back and forth and there was this girl that came to church one Sunday. And I could just tell by the way she was dressed and actually more just by the sort of sour look on her face most way through the sermon. She clearly didn't like a lot of what I was saying. I said, okay, she's a newcomer. And I think she's clearly coming out of a very alternative lifestyle. And at the end of the service, I walked up and I introduced myself and I said, I'm glad you're here. And she said, thanks. She said, I don't agree with a lot of what you said in the sermon. I said, that's okay. Hope you come back. And she said, I'm looking for God. And as the conversation continued, I found the boldness to ask. I said, can I ask you why you chose to come here? I mean, we're this old in Ottawa, this old 135-year-old church, stone building, dark interior because all the stained glass, freezing cold in the winter, boiling hot in the summer, really uncomfortable pews. So why would you choose here? Why, if there's a church across the street that meets in a movie theater that has a hologram preacher, and then down the road, there's a church that meets in a library, and it's more like a rave on Sunday morning, like, why would you choose this? And she said to me, watershed moment, The God I am looking for would be found in a church like this. Now, what she wasn't saying was that God dwells in buildings made of human hands. What she was saying is, the God I am looking for better not look like the world that is beating me up and chewing me up every day. I am living in a world that is destroying me and I desperately need to come and find a God who is holy and sacred and other who can save me out of this broken world. As David says in Psalm 63, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. It's like Dostoevsky says, It's not that we come to church to escape the world. It's that we come to church to behold the beauty that will save the world. David knows that in church, he beholds his future because in church, he beholds the fullness of God. But it's not enough. There's more. See, David tells us in verse 11 and 12, and it's honest. He says, 
Oh, hide not your face from me, nor cast your servant away in displeasure. You have been my helper. Leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. Forsake me. That's his true worry. And it's rightly founded. David knows who he is. David knows his failings. David knows how much he messes up. David knows how much is broken within him. And that fear of being forsaken, that fear that a sinful human being could come into this place of holiness, this place of sacredness, and behold the living God in his fullness and not worry about being forsaken. Of course we would worry about being forsaken. As David says elsewhere in Psalm 51, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. But then he says this in verse 13. Here's where he finds confidence to come into the temple, to come into the house of worship, to come to church, the broken, sinful man he is. The whole gospel is in this verse, verse 13. When my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord takes me in. Do you hear what David is saying there? That when father or mother would forsake us, the ones that are meant to care most for us, be the most stable, be the most secure, when even they would forsake us, God will not forsake us. God will take us in like a father. God will take us in like a father. And remember that David's not just a king when he says this. He's a prophet. As Acts chapter 2 verse 30 tells us, David is a prophet. Look at all the psalms he wrote and how so many of these psalms contain more under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit than David ever intended. The Psalms are filled with prophecies, with words about another who is to come, prophecies that will be fulfilled in no one other than the son of David in his own line, the true king. You see, when David says, the Lord will take me in like a father, He's using it in a metaphorical, analogous kind of way. You know, I'm trying to describe kind of the way God would take me. And and the best example would be as a father, even better than your earthly fathers. But the truth is that it's not a metaphor and it's not an analogy whatsoever. On the morning of Easter, as Jesus stands in the garden with Mary Magdalene, having borne all of humanity's sins in his body on the cross, taking our place in judgment for all that's wrong in us, and then rising from the dead, overcoming death and the grave. When he stands there, having accomplished this victory over sin and death, what does he say to Mary Magdalene when he sends her out as the first missionary, the the proto-evangelist, the first to go out with the gospel? In verse 17, he says, go and tell my brothers, the disciples, that I'm ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and your God. Those backwards, backstabbing, runaway disciples, 
He calls them brothers on the morning of the resurrection because of what he has accomplished in his death and resurrection. They are brothers because now Jesus and his disciples share a common father. He is not analogous, not metaphorical. He is our father if we're in Christ. Though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will take me in like a father, as father. I am broken, the gospel tells us. I am sinful. I am not worthy to be in the house of God. But God takes me in because he's my father. J.I. Packer, probably one of the greatest theologians, evangelical theologians of the last century, or at least the latter half of the last century and into the 21st century, who died just earlier this year. J.I. Packer, who was one of my professors and a personal mentor, and whose book, by the way, Knowing God, is uh, in the bookstore this month as my clergy book pick of the month. Packer summed up the entirety of the gospel, of our Christian faith, in that vital chapter in knowing God. I think it's chapter eight, you can check. He says this, he says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption as God's children. So you can't know the fullness of God as father sitting on a beach or walking through a rainforest. The general revelation of God must become specific through word and sacrament every time we gather, telling the story, telling the story, rehearsing the story, living into the truth of who God is in fullness as father. That's where we find our future. It's the story of the girl who's flying on the airplane by herself. The flight attendant looks over and knows, of course, that there's a child who's about seven, eight years old, traveling alone up in business class. And so she's got her eye on the girl, especially throughout the flight. And at one point, a storm hits and it gets very turbulent, very turbulent. She's been on many flights and she's worried. All the adults are freaking out every time the, ch- the plane bumps and moves. But she keeps watching the little girl and noticing that she'll simply close her eyes for a second, open them and just perfectly calm. And, and she thinks to herself, the flight attendant, well, clearly this girl's so young, she doesn't understand the danger we're in. She doesn't understand this dangerous moment. And I mean, ignorance is bliss. After the flight, she goes up to the little girl. They do arrive safe and sound. And she says, did you know all of what was going on when the flight got bumpy? And the little seven, eight-year-old says, oh, you mean the turbulence? And she said, oh, okay, the seven, eight-year-old knows the word turbulence. She says, yeah, I knew what it was. And she said, but you weren't scared at all. 
She said, oh, it's because the pilot's my daddy. And he's taken me home. There is no future that we find apart from this truth. For a Christian, the most significant decision we make every week is will we go to church? David knows that in church, gathered in worship in the house of God, we behold our future as we behold the fullness of God as our Father. These words of Psalm 1 begin to become our daily rallying cry. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom then shall I fear? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.